0: Welcome to this special episode of Conversations of Inspiration, where I'll be revisiting my favorite parts of this series. And what a series it's been! From meeting one of my all time idols, Bobby Brown, to meeting the world's idol, David Gandhi, as well as a woman who I now deem to be one of the greatest inspirations of our time, Dame Stephanie Shirley. It's an honour to be able to share their lesser known stories with you, but perhaps the greatest part of hearing these stories firsthand, I suppose, is the impact that I know that they'll have on my own journey in the future. And I hope in some way yours too. You know, the wisdom that they impart and the vulnerabilities that they share enrich our own lives and empower us with valuable insights when we're navigating our sort of own twists and turns and as the series has shown perhaps more than ever before is that great highs and lows are not only part of each and every single founder story but fundamental to the destination they would get to
1: Bow your head
2: and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going, you won't need to bring your
0: frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favorite small businesses, entrepreneurs, and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. The golden thread of life is one that I talk often about. I believe that when you look back at your very earliest days on the planet, the seeds were sown for where you would excel in later life. And in this series, it was evident in more than most that formative years and experiences would determine the path in later life. Sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes happy, fun or emotional, but in nearly every founder's story, the success that they would find in later life was in motion well before they were even aware of it. Perhaps one of the most incredible examples of striving for success against the backdrop of the most difficult of starts is the wonderful Dame Stephanie Shirley, better known as Steve. It was genuinely one of the greatest privileges to speak to Steve not only hear her story firsthand, but also to hear her perspective on life with 88 glorious years of wisdom under her belt. Her life, she decided, would be one worth saving. And my goodness, what a life she created and what a legacy she built. Here she shares her earliest memories and experiences that would pave the way for her extraordinary life. People rather expect
3: me to have memories of what was going on in the politics or or things like that. But, of course, my memories are of a five-year-old. They're memories of a lost doll rather than the lost home. They're memories of a little boy who kept being sick every time the train made an unscheduled stop. You know, he would be vomiting. My memories are not of any historical import at all. What they underline is the sheer trauma of having a break in your childhood like that, where you suddenly are finding yourself in a new country with new language, new food, new parents, new everything. And suddenly you've got to survive um, with this when, especially the language difficulty, it was, uh, uh, I can remember a journey back from Liverpool Street Station to uh, the Midlands where um, my foster parents um, uh, lived. They didn't speak German, we didn't speak english and and mm. and I was screaming apparently um and because I'd lost my doll and and it, it was they were just nightmarish periods, but of course that was the beginning of a period where you you made an adjustment, you learned the language, you learned to accept what had happened, and in my case, I really moved away from my birth parents. Because when we met again after many years, the the relationship had been broken. And so I never bonded with them again. I became a dutiful daughter, um, but it was a dutiful, not a loving daughter, because I I bonded with my foster parents.
0: That must have been, um, because as you're describing, you quickly adapted to this life forming the, all these strong bonds with the UK, with your your family. But you also experienced, as you were growing up in England, you experienced survivor's guilt as a teenager. How did that manifest itself?
3: Well, you would imagine that if you knew that you'd been saved from Nazi Europe and people were actually saying things to you, aren't you lucky to be saved? Aren't you lucky to be saved? And indeed, I was lucky, but... Um, it's not a healthy thing to say to a 5 year old. Yeah. The recognition that I had to adapt somehow led to this survivor guilt that I had escaped. Um it was it's quite illogical. You'd think I would have been very happy to be alive but in fact I was consumed with guilt. It was as if the the Nazi horrors were my own. Mm. Um and Uh, it really took six years of analysis at the renowned Tavistock Clinic in London um, to get me through that.
0: Steve shared such incredible insights, pioneered the freelance economy, was a female tech founder from the kitchen table and whose company was ultimately valued at nearly three billion dollars. I can believe that her story wasn't more widely known. In fact, We're thinking about campaigning for a national Dame Stephanie Shirley Day. It's got a ring to it, hasn't it? We're now constantly asking ourselves in the office, how can we be a little more Steve? Each one of us listening today, we are truly miracles because there is a one in 400 trillion chance of us being born. Each of our life experiences are unique and shape us into the humans we will become. And in this series, the experiences of the formative years and how that would shape the brands these founders would go on to build. For Jens Knup, founder of Knup's, this was a fond childhood memory of chocolate with his grandmother. For Katie Emk, founder of Fine Cell Work, it was a chance adventure across America where she would work in her first prison. And for Bobby Brown, it was her mother asking one simple question that would spark the imagination of a young girl who would go on to build
4: a global brand. I used to watch my mother, who was the most glamorous, beautiful woman and 20 years old when I was born. So she was always very young. And I would just watch her use makeup to enhance and beautify herself. And I would do it on myself so I could never look like her. I was never that kind of a beauty, but I did it so I looked better. And when I told my mom I didn't know what I wanted to do in my career in life, she or in my major in school, she said, forget about it. What would you want to do if it was your birthday and you could do anything you wanted? And by the way, I could have said, go to Paris. I could have said, go shopping for jeans. But I said, makeup. And she said, why don't you be a makeup artist? And I said, I didn't want to go to beauty school. She said, I'm sure you could find a college somewhere. And I did. I found a college that let me study makeup. They didn't have the program. I had to design my own program. Now it's called entrepreneurship.
0: With it being Harry's 17th birthday last weekend, the roles mothers play in shaping our young has very much been in my thoughts. I spent so many years over my career agonizing that I was somehow messing Harry up, that by missing his first steps or not being at school pickup, I had caused irreparable damage. And yet, as we mark the milestone birthday this week, albeit with some trepidation. I mean, can you remember what you were up to at 17? I can. I was stood with a man who I'm so incredibly proud of and will soon be heading to university, the next chapter. As I reflected on the role a mother plays in her child's life, I thought I'd share Willard Wigan's story, the world's greatest micro-artist. He explained and brought to life his feelings in a way that I'd never heard or experienced before. His is a story that is undeniably one of talent that was nurtured and championed by his mother. Without it, his diamond may have never been uncovered and the world would have lost this creative superhuman and his talents.
5: Autism is a blessing in disguise, you see. I I call it a learning difference, I don't, you know... I don't see it as an obstacle. I see it as an enhancement, mm. you know, because it, it, it's like a. Um, my mum would say to me, "The diamond is in the dustbin." <laughs> That's what she used to say. And I'd say, "What do you mean by that?" She'd say, "Because society, they have a habit, of throwing the best away until somebody uncovers it and realises they threw a diamond away." Yeah. instead and then they empty the bin and see that there's a diamond you see because I know how things work because sometimes the best comes from less or from where you least expect
4: Mm.
5: you see what I mean you you may see something and then go past it yeah and then go back and have a look go oh my god I didn't know that was there Mm. I didn't expect to see that there you know what I mean?
3: Yeah.
5: You know, if you can go into some of the remote parts of Brazil, into, like, the places where there's a lots of trouble and whatever, whatever. And if you go in there and seek it, you'll see the real diamond because there are from deprived areas. and You know, you'll see people who have been uh, hidden away and, and then all of a sudden they've been uncovered and you go... Where, 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 I didn't know you, where, do, where are you from? Oh, I'm from uh, the Prevello's, I'm from the Prevello's. It's supposed to be terrible there, yes, but the diamond's in the dustbin. You see what I mean? So yeah. uh, uh, I've seen people that have been underestimated. Mm. You see what I mean? If you look at a Shaolin monk, he's very small, but he's an immense fighter. You see what I mean? It's like... There's an old saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. So we're always trying to accept something because we can see it. But what about something you can't see? There's a saying, just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. So, you know, that depicts me for who I am. I am a a, a testimony of what can be achieved from the word nothing. The word nothing doesn't exist because there's always something
0: Willard had such a beautiful way of expressing himself and speaking to him, learning his story and the uncovering of his extraordinary talent after being literally paraded around the school as an example of failure was heartbreaking and inspiring in equal measure. As I speak to more and more founders, I am convinced that the key to our future happier selves lies within us as children and it's our role as adults to help find that diamond and to shine it champion it and ensure that its brilliance is never dimmed even when the pressure of school life exams and the backdrop of peers and what's expected of you weighs heavily it was a sentiment that was echoed by my next guest Josh Patterson, who I'm sure many of you will recognise from *Maiden Chelsea. And I'm the first to admit I was nervous to talk to Josh as I felt quite out of my depth through reality TV. But it just didn't matter. The reality was I was met with an empathetic, kind and passionate person and with purpose at the centre of his world. His story is a timely reminder that we can reconnect with our diamond at any point in our lives. You know, I look at, you know, everybody and we talk about the diamond in children that we should find. And it's almost like the schooling potentially that we have today and certainly in your experience where they weren't looking for it. And more that we were told, you know, but when you grow up, what are you going to do rather than actually looking for the beauty in our children and realizing that actually probably that human, they just are very young. Love something, and maybe that's what's going to be what they should be anchored to for the rest of their life. And that we should actually go searching for those diamonds because it feels like for you, your diamond is sport, is your empathy, you know, and the fact that that was all muddled at the start of your life. But it feels like you've come full circle where this is also your life raft in your life, and you've gone on now. To build a business out of this as well, called Run Buddy, tell me what your dreams are for Run Buddy, and is this where you're going to play out some of your visions, some of your dreams?
1: Yeah, um, 100. It, it, like I said, it, it gives me an opportunity to grip bridge the gap with so many different communities to try and inspire people, you know, what I go through, I I need to make this very clear to people because I think people's perception is sometimes they can put you on this pedestal and think you're just this monster of an athlete. I've never been in a wheelchair before. You know, I've never run long distances before I took up running less than two years ago. Obviously with the wheelchair challenges, I I, I just took it up because of Tano. I had no prior experience. And actually when I did John O'Groats the Land's End, my body, you're literally, you're sat on your leg, So it put my lower spine into such a compromised position where it would go into a spasm. Now, my ability didn't necessarily get me to accomplish those challenges. It was the passion I had for what I was trying to achieve. And that's what I'm trying to find in every single person. And I want to create that platform for them to support them and enable them, as you pointed out, to find their diamond Because I think in life, it doesn't have to make sense. And a lot of my challenges to 98% of the people probably don't make sense. It just has to have purpose. And that's what they have. And I think more often than not, I see people underestimating their ability of what they think is possible. And I know with the right platform or people around them, anything is possible.
0: Purpose, community and support is very much a theme of my next guest conversation. Katie Emp is founder of Fine Cell Work, a charity and social enterprise which enables prisoners to build fulfilling and crime-free lives by training them in high-quality, skilled, creative needlework. It's important to me that this podcast tackles subjects that could be shied away from. I personally found this conversation very thought-provoking. Whilst the education system an independent high street and supporting women to build businesses play consistently on my mind, I suppose I'm a little ashamed to say I hadn't really considered prison reform and the role that championing creativity can have. Katie Empk is simply a magnificent human and if you haven't heard this conversation, please do go and have a listen to it. I have long been a believer that the key to solving societal issues is through building brilliant businesses. In fact, it was a sentiment that Edward Perry, the founder of Cookshed, remember that episode? At the very start of my podcast journey in 2018 and it's stayed with me ever since. Fine cell work is possibly one of the best examples of this in action. And the statistics she shares with me in this conversation, I found utterly shocking.
6: It really is barren and bleak and soulless and soul-destroying. Everything is regimented. You have no choice and no freedom. I've had the experience of going into a room full of prisoners and tipping a bag of wools on the table and a sort of murmur going through the room just at the joy of seeing all these colours. And the prisoners often talk about, you know, just colour, as Lady Anne would have said, having something beautiful in their lives. Why don't we look at that as a basic human right? You know, the right to have and create beauty. I didn't know the power of needlework. I didn't quite understand what I did when I started doing it. But for me, the magic of it was learning from other people and the experience of this kind of innate creativity in everyone, in our volunteers and our prisoners, they were the ones who went and created, you know, these sewing circles and they worked together, they collaborated. So I guess it was about a kind of this incredible privilege of unlocking the innate creativity in other people. And that creativity is also to do with, it's partly to do with working your hands, but it's also to do with collaboration. You You know, the experience of working together is after all is one of the joyful things in life, and if people in prison are deprived of that, you know how the hell do we think they 're going to come out and be decent citizens?
0: Am I right in saying that the reoffending rate on average out there for prisoners is forty six percent right, which is what you are referring to, which is if our schools and uh, had this sort of this statistic well it wouldn 't happen forty six percent failure right yeah forty six percent
6: failure. Tell me about your statistics. Well, our statistics are with the prisoners that we work with after release, we've got an only 3% reoffending rate, which seems to get, be going down because essentially in the last two years, we've not had a single reoffender. So that's 3% against 46%. The way it works is that they come and they're part of a the community, they feel useful, they are well managed and very well supported and listened to. And um, they're helped with practical things in their lives, which often can be really extremely challenging. I mean, no one wants to give them a job. So their lives are very difficult and they come and they work with us and they have purpose, they have community and they have support and they do not feel like they're being judged and rejected. And that is liberating and they all talk about it. So we have a real problem, which is that when people come back into society after a prison sentence, it's often said by people in this world, it's like starting a second sentence, because essentially, often you've lost your family and friends, or maybe you never had any family, and your friends are all the wrong sort. How do you reestablish yourself? Most people, when they come out of prison, feel like they're branded, feel like everyone knows where they've been. So you're quite paranoid, and you're fearful, and you've lost your social skills, and you haven't worked for years, if you ever had a job before you went down. So I think it's this kind of, it's just understanding how how disabled many of these people are, they're not going to function well unless they have certain kinds of support. So we have low reoffending rates.
0: Can you even cope with those stats? Why, as a nation, are we not shining more of a spotlight on it? I love the idea that creativity could be, in part, some of the solution. I started my interview with Katie. With some trepidation, as I said, prison isn't an area that I give much, if any, thought to, nor have I had any involvement with this sector. But far from a conversation that was dark and intimidating, my heart was left warm and full when Katie shared the human stories behind her work, the impact it's had not only on the inmates, but the connection it created outside the prison walls. Simply inspiring. You've made everyone very, very human. We talk about those who are stitching, the creativity coming from them, their stories. And I know in each piece that someone can buy, individual pieces are tagged with the creator. So that stitcher basically is known to the consumer, which basically encourages the purchaser to offer their feedback and write back to the creator. Yes. Now you've described this as the secret
6: weapon. Uh, I've got a hunch what that means, but can you tell us what that means? Well, I think it actually expresses the connection and forges it between the customer, the consumer and the maker. And, you know, you have people in prison or outcasts. They really are. You know, they've been shunned and excluded. They, we don't know about them. We we, we view them with fear. And, and the fact that someone writes a thank you letter just makes them feel, and they've said over and over again, you know, how it makes them feel getting a thank you letter. And one guy put it, he said, it's putting something good out into the world, mm. you know? And the, the word good there is very loaded, isn't it? It's got all kinds of values. Yes. And, and I've spoken, another thing that has struck me is speaking to prisoners with their thank you letters. Some of them, this guy used to carry all his thank you letters around in a kind of a folder, and he was very proud of them. And I noticed that when he was carrying them, he was actually uh, he was less weird to, to talk to um, because he was quite an alienated character, and I realised it was because he felt more kind of connected. He, it broke through his bubble. Yeah, he talked about his thank you letters, and he just he just suddenly sounded normal. Yes, and often when you spoke to him, he, he wasn't quite normal. Yeah, you know, yeah. and he was just like, oh, I've got all these thank you letters, you know, and there he was. He looked you straight in the eye, and he was right there, and he was present. We're working with our
0: partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to Faye from the brand Papier, all about the golden rules for emails. Should a newsletter go out on the same date every month or does it not matter? That is like a golden question, isn't it? (laughs) I can imagine that there might be the pressure to think, I've I've got to do it on the same day. It depends how you've positioned it. Holly, you've said mine goes out every Friday. That's part of it. It's Friday news. If you don't market it as that, then no. If you're starting out in marketing, you can think everyone thinks the same way or thinks as a marketer. But when was the last time you went in your inbox and thought, actually, this is going to come through today because it's a... a Wednesday, yeah. and I typically. Well, we wish it. they did, hey, Faye. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't we love everyone just waiting with beta graph for our emails? <laughs> but funny enough, they don't. <laughs> Life gets in the way, you know. I mean, I struggled just then to even remember it was a Wednesday, so. <laughs> <laughs> For the latest lessons, advice, and insights, visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub, a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community, sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Nadia Hussein is a face all of us will know. And if you watched along with the nation as she lifted the Bake Off trophy, you would have been in tears as she uttered, I'm never going to put boundaries on myself ever again. I'm never going to say I can't do it. I'm never going to say maybe. I'm never going to say I don't think I can. I can and I will. So as you can imagine, I was eager to speak to her to find out more about her journey. But what I wasn't expecting from this bubbly on-screen persona was her 36-year battle with anxiety I came away from my conversation with Nadia thinking about how far society has come when talking about mental health, but also how far we have to go. As a Bangladeshi woman, Nadia grew up with there not even being a word or a phrase for mental health amongst her community. The mindset she finds herself in today, I hope will give solace and comfort to anyone who might find themselves in the same situation. This time last year you were having panic attacks every other week and that your last panic attack was actually at Christmas Mm. and this is the longest you've ever been without a panic attack. Mm. What do you think has happened and is there anything you could share with those that are listening? Um, Oh gosh, you know, to think this has been
7: 36 years of... you know for me you know 36 years later it's progress and I'd love to say that there's this you know all of us anyone who suffers with anxiety we'd love to say there's this switch Mm -hmm. that just happens Um, and the truth is I think I'll forever live in fear that it will be there and it'll kind of consume me but that is part of the reason why I feel so much better in myself is that I've just accepted that that could happen again and if it does I've accepted that it won't kill me Like that's not going to be the thing because when you have a panic attack, you do feel like you're dying. And for anyone who's never had one before might think that's completely extreme and and it can't possibly. But for anyone who's had a panic attack, they will know it feels like you are literally on death's door. You can't breathe. Your world spins. You have no control over your body and it feels like death and it feels like that's it. I can't breathe. My chest is tight. My airways are clogging up. You do feel like you're going to have a heart attack and for anyone who's experienced that will know that I'm not being extreme it's it is the way it feels and and part of the reason why i think i feel better is that i've recognized that rather than trying to fight the panic attack mm-hmm. the anxiety i just allow it because it is a natural part of of my everyday existence is that if i'm meant to have an anxiety attack if i if if, if it's meant to happen then it will and weirdly there's something about willing it to come on. It's like, okay, listen, if you're going to happen, just happen. And it's so weird because now when I say that, and it's isn't it bizarre because I feel like I am talking to a monster. When I tell the monster, like, okay, listen, you want to do this? You want to come in my face and you want to destroy my day? Go right ahead. And it's weird because once you give it permission, it's like it doesn't want it anymore. Wow. It's so bizarre. Facing up to it. Yeah. And it's that has helped me. You know, before I used to live in fear of, oh my goodness, I can't possibly speak publicly or go to town today or go out today because what if I have a panic attack? What if it happens? And it's so bizarre because in that moment when you say, you know what, actually, so what if I have a panic attack in public? So what if I fall apart a little bit in front of people? So what? Mm. Taking that control back has stopped it happening. And it's about control. And I think, you know, the more I kind of tell my monster, go on, do your best, it hides. And, and, And I think that has really helped me in controlling it um, but also accepting the fact that this is kind of how I feel because as an overthinker, the only way I think is overthinking. I don't know how to think any other way. In being an overthinker, I'm an oversharer and I, you know, overlove and I overgive and, and I've kind of come to accept that that's just who I am and it, that makes having anxiety a lot easier.
0: Of course, we know that everyone faces their own struggles, but I think so often in today's world, with such a focus on social media, we can only see one part of people's lives and we live in this age of comparison. As a society, we are quick to judge, to find the villain in the story and can be reluctant to embrace change. But each one of us has chapters of our life. We change, we grow, evolve, and who we were then may not be who we are now. Josh Patterson is such an example of this. I think that the vulnerability that he shared with me in our conversation is such an important one. Men struggle to talk about their mental health. There's crazy statistics, aren't there, around men's mental health. And so I think it's very, very important that we break stigmas and that actually things that affect us as children. I have a number of men in my life where absolutely today in their 60s and 70s, they are basically built and wired and react because of the trauma that they suffered as children. And that is what we are. Is that one of your goals now, in terms of dealing with mental health? Do you feel like this is something that will be with you forevermore? Is this a passion now of yours?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. The more I learn about myself, the more passionate I become. And I would say to anybody that goes through something similar, one of the greatest assets you will inherit, I would hope, is empathy. I tell you what, when you've got that. My God, that will drive you or push you on to do the most remarkable things, not just for yourself, but for other people too. And actually, it's not something that everybody has. And that is what is wrong with the world. That's why we find ourselves in these tricky situations, because that person does not have it. They have the ability to have it, but maybe choose not to sometimes. I wake up most days, even now, and I still don't know, you know, I still, I have this imposter syndrome where I'm like, what, what, who am I? You know, what, what is my purpose in the world? I look at that friend and they're so talented. They play the piano, the violin. I look at that friend and they're an unbelievable developer, anything to do with it or that person's a professional athlete or they're a superb actor or they're a successful business owner. And I still wake up and I'm like, I'm not good. I can't do a spreadsheet. You know, I'm dyslexic. I'm terrible with spelling. Mm. I get things wrong more often than not. But actually what I've come to realize is through my own adversities, my purpose in life is to support other people, you know, and enable them to come through whatever adversity it is that they are facing. And so I'm using multiple different forms to try and communicate that message to individuals because actually over time, I probably am not the stereotype that most people would maybe have for somebody who has struggled or is struggling mentally. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of my background, I would like to think that we're breaking or I am trying to break those stereotypes down to commun- like, communicate Sorry, that message more to people. Because like you said, based on the statistics, I think currently 84 men are taking their life a week. This narrative of be tough, be strong, it, it's clearly not working because those numbers are increasing and will continue to increase until we have these conversations. But I think it's the way you articulate yourself, the things that you achieve. I guess the way you communicate it to other people is so valuable because actually what will work with you, Holly, isn't necessarily going to work with somebody else. Yeah. And that's where empathy comes in yeah. and you have to understand that person's journey. Some people like to be shouted at, some don't. Some people, when you talk to them, like you by their side. Some like you at the front. You have to understand what makes them work.
0: Absolutely. And I've
1: just learned that through my life. And so I'm trying as many different methods as possible to communicate that message and say it's okay.
0: I loved how he talked about empathy. In fact, empathy and acting thoughtfully sit at the very heart of Holly & Co.'s culture and values. Because I believe so fundamentally that kindness in business is the future. I think we'll hear more and more about kindness in business, and it's exactly what the wonderful David Gandhi shared in his letter to his younger self. Despite quite a few nerves on welcoming David to my house, I mean, really, how would you feel welcoming the world's biggest supermodel into your house? He was the most kind, down-to-earth, and approachable man. He really is someone who I now consider a friend. The words he shared with his younger self are beautiful and really sum up the generosity of his spirit and the role kindness and empathy play in building a successful business.
1: You are a naturally very kind person and always think of others before yourself. In many ways, I wish I could warn you away from this and tell you to be more ruthless. People will see the kindness as a weakness. They will try and succeed and take advantage of it. At school, this is called bullying and it doesn't stop in business or life. In business, many people do not care about being kind or thoughtful. They don't put themselves or others or in other people's shoes. They think of money and getting a win at any cost without consequences. That's not you. You may think you're insecure, but it is the people that try to make you feel bad and abuse your kindness that are the insecure. You are, in fact, incredibly strong. Always remember, be kind to people every day in every walk of life, not because they're who they are or what they can do for you in turn, but because you can.
0: So from one household favourite, David Gandy, mine, to another, Harry's, Jens Knoop. To quantify how much of a favourite he is, we went through Harry's bank statements last month and we realised that over half of his money had been spent at Knoop's on hot chocolate. And when Jens got in touch, I jumped at the chance to speak to him. He's quite unlike any other guest I've had before, a vision so concise and vivid, a clear golden thread from his childhood, which has led to a thriving business, but one that absolutely sticks to what he knows and loves, hot chocolate. And he does it brilliantly. There's a real strength in honing and owning your niche, and that's what I really took away from this conversation. Yes, we must be agile, nimble, and react to what a customer wants, but that doesn't mean diversifying to the nth degree. Strength of brand can often be about consistency, delivering a brilliant product or service time and time again. It takes 10,000 hours on average to become an expert. Jens has clearly honed his craft and it seems Harry's also well on his way to becoming an expert too. Here's Jens talking about what makes his brand unique and the customer experience. I'm a strong believer that actually one of the reasons you need a physical presence is because we are becoming so sort of switched off to online experience you know one website merges into another website etc mm-hmm. etc and i think we are craving difference so this is why i advocate getting physical space but then you almost need to make that impact that brand impact so did you have mm-hmm. a very clear vision describe it for the listeners you know when you walk in
2: so when you walk in the first thing you see is almost like a scientific periodic table at the back wall of the shop, yes, which exactly. displays all 21, 22 percentages, as well as options, as in uh, milk options and then other drink options. That's always an interesting journey. We're constant discussion. This is our mark. This is how we are perceived. Some say it's Germanic, scientific. I can live with that. That's fine. But it's, it's very, it does. But you know what?
0: That's good. You I know, like so it, for yeah. me, so everyone listening, you know, here is a German guy creating a hot chocolate brand. Yeah. I always talk about the brand heart of businesses. Mm. And in your brand heart, the thing that's your living embodiment of your brand, for you, it is German. It will be that way inclined, won't mm-hmm. it? But that's what makes it beautiful. It it makes it defendable, doesn't mm-hmm. it? That if we all have our uniqueness, maybe from where we're born to how we were brought up, mm-hmm. that needs to go into the brand heart. So when I walk in, now having listened to you, I will understand why it looks as it does. And for me, that's something... Beautiful, actually.
2: And I think my mission at the beginning was also it's quite a clear approach. It's a little bit more factual what these chocolates are. It's not this chocolate transports you there, and you're imposing emotions onto the customer. I think customers have an individual relationship to their chocolates anyway. Is it a milk chocolate from your childhood? Is it the 100% that gives you a boost? So I didn't want to impose any ideas onto the customer, what they're supposed to taste or what they're supposed to feel. I leave that up to the customer, why they're coming into the shop, what their desire is, is it an escapism, is it a nourishment? Mm. And that's why it is a fairly clear wall of menu information at the back. And I think that has become one of our signatures.
0: Each week, as you know, I close my episode with a letter. And of course, this week is no different. There were such beautiful letters in this series and many tears shed, both mine and my guests. And as I read all my DMs, lots of yours too. So tissues at the ready as I leave you now with Dame Stephanie Shirley. I chose this letter because speaking to Steve with her 88 years of wisdom and experience was such a profound moment, one that will truly stay with me forever. So enjoy. I look forward to sharing the next episode of Conversations of Inspiration with you very soon. Sending all my love. My dearest Vera, I write your name in recollection of the frightened
3: little girl who grew into the adult Stephanie Shirley, better known as Steve Shirley, me. As a part-Jewish crossbreed, the insulting term used by Hitler, your future in Germany looks grim. But you will be saved by the Kindertransport, that remarkable, somewhat improvised rescue effort, which will bring thousands of mainly Jewish children to safety in Britain in 1938 and thirty-nine. So keep firm hold of your big sister as you travel together to a new future. Survivors are the people who count. And know that pain allows you to grow. Be brave and keep cheerful, little Vera. The worst didn't happen. Your new parents will love you as they would their own. They will help you find your place in the world. Remember that you are unique, just like everyone else. Take no notice of what adults say, but rather learn by observing what they do. Be confident. Have confidence in yourself. And if you focus on the sort of person you want to become, you don't need to worry about what you're going to do when you grow up. Happy times will come again. Things will get better. But happiness will elude you if you pursue it too keenly. And happiness is temporary. It's the joy that comes from within that is lasting. I promise you, promise across my heart, that you will find true joy with a good man and your life together will be diverse and rich in experience. Stay true to your sunny self and all will be well.
0: Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.